Thank you for joining me again in the next of a series, what I'm calling podcasts, where I sit down with a senior member of our firm and chat about some of the most pressing topics in the market today. We talked earlier this year about global economies and bonds with our CIO of fixed income, Doug Peebles. We've covered the generational opportunity in lending to the U.S. energy sector with Deacon Turner, and all of those discussions are available to you online. Today, I thought we would turn our attention to U.S. stocks, and who better to do that with than Jerry Paul, the Chief Investment Officer of our U.S. Strategic Equity and U.S. Value Portfolios. By way of background, Jerry is another long-tenured pillar of our firm. He joined Bernstein in 1987 as a research analyst covering the automotive industry, and as an analyst, Jerry was a regular member of the Institutional Investor All-American Research Team. Prior to taking on his current role as CIO of Strategic Equity and Strategic Value, he had been the chief investment officer for our REIT service and our small and mid-cap value portfolios, as well as our advanced value fund. And I am delighted to have him join me today. Thank you, Mark. So, Jerry, we're talking on an afternoon where the U.S. market has hit all-time highs. What's your view of where we stand? Um, well, if we want to focus just on the valuation of the market today, uh, especially as it hit all-time highs. I think it's important to define how we should think about valuation. Okay. If we look at it in a historical context, the market actually looks a little bit expensive. It's in about the 75th or 80th percentile when measured on a PE basis, and so that means it's only been cheaper 20 or 25 percent of the time. The problem is you can't buy the market at various points in time. You can only buy it today or not buy it today. And so you also have to think about it relative to your other choices. And compared to the other places where most people can put their money, stocks actually look pretty good. So our expected returns from bonds are considerably below the long-term average. And so when you think about stocks relative to bonds, they look great. So, so what is that expected return if you think over the next three to five years? Well, I think if we look out the next three, five, and even 10 years, you'll probably see returns from U.S. stocks in the 55 or 6% range annualized. And you won't get that every year. Right. It'll, it'll come in fits and starts. Um, and where that'll come from is about 4% growth in earnings uh, and 2% or so dividend yield and no expansion in the multiple that investors are willing to pay for those earnings. So, so clients see a, a slow economy in the U.S., Maybe it's slowing down here. Maybe it's slowing down globally. Can we get 4% earnings growth in this environment? Well, the long-term history is we've had 6% earnings okay. growth. And where you can get earnings growth from is from nominal revenue growth, which might be in the sort of 3% range. And you'll probably get it from, on a per-share basis, continued share repurchase uh, and shrinkage of the equity base. The one thing you're not likely to see, I don't think, is margin expansion from this point forward. Um, profit margins for U.S. corporations are at record highs if you exclude, for example, the cyclical aspects of energy and materials and the like. Um, and while I don't think there's a lot of threat to those margins, it's also hard to see them moving up from here. What do you, what do you make of the argument that, that we hear from clients who say that equities are artificially inflated because of unprecedented monetary policy from central banks and the printing of money? Do you, do you think that argument is accurate? Um, if not, why? If, if so, why? And, and, and how does that make you think broadly about the market? Well, that assertion or, or the belief, okay. right, yeah. that um, we have unprecedented 
monetary actions and that interest rates are historically low. I mean, that's a, that's an observable fact. Right. Affects the price of all assets, right? Because in the end, all assets are valued against some sort of risk-free alternative. And so the question is, are stocks disproportionately disadvantaged as a result of that? And I'm not sure that they are. And I'll point to two things. The first one is that in the equation, if you want to think about it that way, for valuing stocks, there's always a tension between um, the growth of earnings and the rate at which you're going to discount those earnings. And if we happen to see rising interest rates, you'll definitely want to pay less for a given stream of earnings, right? right? But it's most likely that interest rates will rise in response to stronger economic growth. And so you'll see stronger earnings growth as well. And so that tension's built into our expectation for relatively low returns from stocks. So when, when you're building a portfolio, you have idiosyncratic stock stories, you have the big macro environment, What's the most important thing or, or most important things that, that you focus on when you're building a portfolio for clients? Well, I think when we're building a portfolio for clients, we really want to try to incorporate a couple of things. The first one is we want to make sure that the research that we're out there doing every day is reflected in the portfolio. We're spending countless man hours of extremely skilled people trying to understand what companies and industries are up to and project what those cash flows are likely to be. But we also want to make sure that the portfolio is properly diversified and that we're not betting on just a single thing. And in a market like today, it would be pretty easy to construct a portfolio that was focused on just a single event. For example, um, if you wanted to just buy a portfolio that was really cheap compared to the marketplace, uh, you could do that, and it would actually look cheap even by historical standards, but you'd be concentrated in two sectors, in energy and in financials. And in the end, you'd just be wagering on the price of oil and the direction of long-term interest rates. So you think you'd so, had a cheap portfolio, but you did, but you really had something else happening. You had something with a lot of risk that right. wasn't properly diversified. So it's also, as I said, important to think about the various things that are going to unlock the opportunities in your portfolio and make sure you're not a one-trick pony. So. When you talk about the different things you want to be exposed to, it makes me think of the term factors that we've started to use more and more in our discussions with clients. And, and I find factors to be an, uh, an inside baseball type of term yeah, they for are. people, right? So, so in layman's terms, what, what do we mean when we're talking about factors? Yeah, factors are sort of an academic way of describing uh, what can drive the return and risk of stocks. So factors are just groups of characteristics that stocks can have in common with one another. Okay. And they're usually talked about in conjunction with an idiosyncratic component. So that's what's unique about a company. So for example, I can look at Apple and I can say, um, I have some unique insight into what the iPhone 7 is going to be. And Apple being the only company that sells the iPhone 7, that component is idiosyncratic. But I can look at Apple as a stock and I can say it's trading at a low multiple of price to earnings. And I could say that it actually has an extremely strong balance sheet and that it has very high quality earnings. And those are attributes that Apple could share with other companies. There are a lot of companies that have, are, are cheaply priced on PE or have good quality earnings. And those common attributes that are associated with return are what we call factors. And are there certain factors that historically have proven to be um beneficial in how you put together a portfolio? Yes. So factors are often 
um, sort of mapped onto style. So there's a whole set of them around valuation, buying companies that are cheap relative to book value or current earnings or cash flow or forecast earnings. That's traditionally been associated with beating the market. Then there's a whole set of quality and growth factors as well. So buying companies whose earnings are growing rapidly, that have very good price momentum, that have high and sustainable returns on assets or returns on equity have also been associated with return. And then there's a whole yet another set around managing quality and risk that have also been associated with relative return. So there are a lot of different common characteristics that companies can have that if you consistently construct a portfolio that's exposed to them will help you beat the market over time. So this might be a chicken or egg question, but do you, do you first think, hey, what factors do I want? And then what companies do I get from my research that fill those factors? Or am I doing a whole bunch of research and then look at what comes out of that and figure out where my factors are? So what a lot of managers who are very style specific do is they figure out what factors they want and then find the companies that fit them. So a value manager is going to want a portfolio that's principally exposed to valuation, cheap PE, cheap price to book, cheap price to cash flow. And a growth manager is principally going to want to be exposed to high price momentum, high returns, high earnings growth. Um, the issue is that the market's appetite for these types of factors can ebb and flow with the opportunities and risks that investors are focused on. And you never know what's going to be rewarded. So for example, if we go back a couple of years uh, to the peak of the um, global financial crisis in late 2008 and early 2009, the best performing factor was dividend yield. Investors wanted high yield because at least they could front load some of the return and they could see it. Okay, But when risk appetite returned in 2009, dividend yield became the worst performing factor. And then when we had the European sovereign debt crisis in 2011, it was the best performing factor again, but was the worst performing factor in 2012 when the European Central Banks came to the rescue. So it's really hard to predict what's going to win and what's going to lose. So what we try to do in strategic equities is we're sort of agnostic as to what's going to win or lose. We just want to make sure that we have some of everything all the time because it can provide a better tailwind for the portfolio. So you're not really, in, in, I don't want to say overtly, but I'll use the word overtly, leaning into one factor versus another. You want to make sure you have your bases covered, if you will, and then the best stocks to fill that bucket. That's right. But we're trying not to be completely ignorant of what's happening in the marketplace, right? If, for example, we see big opportunities in value, we're going to lean a little more heavily into value. So how many stocks do you need to build that type of portfolio? Because this is one of the things clients talk to me a lot about. How many stocks am I going to have in my portfolio? How many should I have? And so, so what's our view and why? Well, our view, I'll tell you the answer, our view is that we should have, have probably somewhere around 70 to 80 stocks. And it's important to understand why you need that many stocks. The real reason you want that many stocks is to help you control risk and the volatility of the portfolio as a whole. So keep in mind that the volatility of the market is, say, 15%, but the volatility of an, any individual stock will be 30-plus percent. And when you put them together and they're uncorrelated, that absence of correlation creates diversification that brings the risk of the portfolio down toward the risk of the market. Okay? Okay. Now, you have to balance that against putting your capital behind your best ideas. And so we think that proper balance is somewhere around 70 or 80 stocks. So how big of a position on a percentage basis would be a, a large position for you? 
uh, it depends if you're thinking in relative or absolute terms, right? So, for example, if you know if um, Apple is two and a half, say, percent of the benchmark, and I own two and a half percent of Apple, I don't have a point of yeah, view. Not really interesting, right? right? It's not that interesting. So, I'd probably want to own three and a half or four right. in order to make it interesting. So, we really think one to one and a half percent active position, meaning relative to the benchmark, is, is a and is in absolute terms, what does that good. probably get you up to? In terms of in terms of an absolute percentage of the portfolio, oh, I guess it depends on what the right. I guess it depends on what the position is. Exactly, right? exactly. But having ten percent in any one name would feel really high to us. That would be unusual. Yeah, I mean there have been times in history where um, stocks could be six or seven percent of the benchmark. And if you really like it a lot, then you're going to have to own eight or nine, right, or ten. And and then for clients who've been with us a while, the other question I ask is: so there's lots of trading in the account now. It's obviously not a cost issue, right? Because we're not we're not charging to trade in the yeah. account. But but help them get a feel for what's causing us to trade and how they should think about turnover in a portfolio. So over the long term, we expect turnover to be about 50%, which means the average okay. holding period of a stock is going to be about two years. Some is going to be a lot longer than that, and some is going to be shorter. There are really a couple of three reasons why we're going to trade in an account. The best reason is that we made the money we think we're going to make, Good and reason. it's time to go. Okay. Um, the second best reason is we've seen shifts in the marketplace that have created more attractive relative opportunities. It might be that we still like the stock that we have in your portfolio, but other things have become so much more attractive that on a relative basis, it's kind of pales in comparison. And then the third reason is we've made some mistake, right? That the opportunity that we saw isn't present. That new information entered the marketplace that caused us to reassess uh, the valuation and, and attractiveness of an individual stock. And then position uh, sizes change over time too, right? Yes, and they're going to change over time uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. If they appreciate and we continue to have conviction, we might just let the larger weight ride. Our conviction also might change, or it may be that we find other names that are related to a particular size and we want to manage risk to an entire theme or exposure. So a, a broader question, and I get this from clients who've been with us many years and who've been investors for many years, that there's a feeling out there that the market is fundamentally different than it used to be. And I don't know if that's because of um, computer trading, high-frequency trading, ETFs, hedge funds. Is there truth to that? If so, does it impact how you run money? Well, it's hard to document, but I think there have been some shifts in the way the market trades. Um, and some of the things that have been driving it have been the cost of trading has come way down, and the amount of information available uh, has gone way up. Now, most of the information isn't useful, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't affect people's emotions, and, and, and they still act on it. So you've got a lot of emotion and a very cheap opportunity to express it, and so people will. Um, there's been a second factor at work, uh, which is I think there has been a shift in risk appetite, where more and more of the trading volume that takes place uh, in the U.S. stock market is focused on downside protection and preventing losses. So, for example, about 25% of the trading volume in U.S. large cap space is done by hedge funds now. And hedge funds, especially as they've been embraced by large institutions, 
are left with a single promise standing, right? Over the last several years, they haven't delivered returns like the stock market has delivered, but they've also promised to limit downside and not lose money. And so what you've seen is I think hedge fund volume really pick up as market returns start to turn negative because they're taking risk out of their books in order to preserve capital. So that has the effect of amplifying any news that might be negative to the market and making it appear a lot louder than it really is. You've got more volatility. You've got more volatility, especially to the downside. There's a whole other cohort uh, that's also emerged of traders that have also emerged uh, post the financial crisis uh, in managed volatility funds. We think there's roughly a trillion or more dollars in the U.S. stock market that's protected by these kinds of products. And everybody here is essentially doing the same thing. They're looking at how risk is behaving in the marketplace today, extrapolating that and trying to be the first ones out the door. But there's a lot of people playing the exact same game, and so it has the same same effect to magnify volatility on the and downside. Does, does that create an opportunity for, for someone like us who's not running out the door in that same way? I think it does. Uh, I think what it means is that the reward to patience and to rebalancing into your best ideas when you have conviction that the story hasn't changed are going to be higher. But it's going to take time to realize it's take that. Time to realize that. So, so I know your team did a research project you'll probably correct me here, last 12, 18 months about how our portfolios looked versus wealth management portfolios and a, a number of other firms. Mm -hmm. What did you learn from that? Well, it was really uh, fascinating, right? What we learned is that while the market's intentions, I think, are pure, uh, their ability to implement and deliver on those is more limited than I expected. So if a, if if a client goes to a traditional wealth advisor, what they're going to end up with is what's typically called an open architecture solution. And the architecture part is their advisor will construct a plan for them that's going to be diversified by style, which is the equivalent of being diversified by factors, if you want okay. to think about it that way. Okay. And they're going to say, you know, you need a value manager, a growth manager, a core manager, maybe a stability manager, because I don't know which of these guys is going to win. Okay. okay. And what I'm going to do for you is I am going to fill those roles by buying mutual funds, right? I'll go out and find the very best value fund, the very best growth fund, the very best core fund, and the very best stability fund. Um, and if for some reason these people don't deliver on my expectations, I'll fire them and, and, I'll, and I'll refill that slot with somebody who's doing a better job. The problem is that the story almost never plays out the way that it's promised because you have two issues with it. The first one is that when you go out to find the very best manager in value and the very best manager in growth and so forth, you're doing it by looking at their trailing track record. Okay? And you're choosing them all to have very good trailing track records over the exact same time period. And so what they're really reflecting is more commonality in the kinds of factors or characteristics that the market was rewarding over that period than you think is going to exist, even though they might be of different styles. And so when market appetite returns or, or turns away from what had just been working, you've got less of what hadn't worked than you really thought. So, so, so what you're saying is, if I understand this correctly, you've got a growth manager, a value manager, a stability manager, whatever the case may be. And they, they all have great last three or five year numbers, and the reality is they're all exposed to dividends. Exactly. Be. Because dividend worked over the last three to five years, and even though they might have different styles, they had to have more than the average of each of their stripes in order to rise to the top of the pack. And then the inverse is potentially 
possible too, right? Because you've and got all that exposure to dividend, and your your argument is these things switch all the time. And often is, right? And the problem with this particular approach, the open architecture approach, isn't the plan. The plan's actually good. You want to be diversified by style. It's that the unit of construction is too blunt. All the open architect can do is buy you a fund, which is a basket of stocks. Okay? They don't actually have any insight into what's inside that fund. So what we do is a little bit different. We take a very similar plan, and we can take our own funds and open them up and then reassemble the pieces in a way that actually has much less vulnerability to reversion and factor exposure that we described. So, so to, to, I guess this gets to the point of concentration. When you're looking, you say opening our portfolios up, you could look at our value portfolio, our growth portfolio, our stability portfolio, all of which have, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 stocks. That's right. But you're not building a portfolio of 200 stocks. You're building it back down to 70 or 80. That's right. I'm choosing the very best representatives of each. So, so. I, the math would suggest that we could be much more concentrated than the open architecture. Oh, we are. I mean, one of the interesting things, too, we saw is that when you go to a traditional open architecture solution, the average client's going to own probably 300 different stocks, okay? Which, when you're trying to beat the S&P 500, is way too many. And again, it's not the fault of any of the individual fund managers who are each creating a diversified portfolio that stands on its own. It's that those portfolios weren't designed to work with one another. And so you've got a belt and suspenders and bailing wire and duct tape providing diversification, and you don't need all that. You've got excess ballast, and a lot of that capital is just sitting around providing diversification and not working for the client. So people have been listening to us for 20 minutes, and I've, I've made them wait for the question that probably most of them find most interesting. What stocks are like today? What theses? What, what's interesting to you today? Well, I think there's a couple parts uh, – of the marketplace that are interesting. If I look out uh, at, at sets of characteristics, you can see a few things. One is that companies that have uh, a lot of assets, book value, are cheap. And another is that companies that are really profitable, that have very high returns, are cheap. And and they're, they're both cheap for the same reason, because the market's suspicious about nominal GDP growth uh, and doesn't believe that companies with um, that are attractively priced on assets are going to be able to have any reversion to normal levels of profit. And they don't think that companies that are earning a lot of money today will be able to reinvest that capital anywhere near the returns that they've historically earned. Um, the flip side is companies that are really stable and predictable look expensive. Now, I'm not willing to go out and say you don't want any of these because they do provide ballast, but on the margin, they're probably a worse bet than their history would, would suggest. Is there a stock story or two that you just find really idiosyncratically interesting today? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you one example that sure. comes out of the sort of low price to book category, and that's a company called Synchrony Financial. So Synchrony Financial is a private label credit card company. That means that they do the credit cards for you know, stores, department stores, and the like. When you have a Sears credit card or a TJ Maxx. Right, an Amazon credit, credit card, yeah. yeah. Um, and this had formerly been part of GE Financial. Um, and the private label credit card space is interesting uh, because it grows faster than the credit card space as a whole because it's actually doing two things. Uh, it's providing credit, but it's also helping grow sales at the merchant. Okay? And so there are some incentives for it to grow a little bit, a bit faster. Um, but there's real concern on, on the part of the stock market um, because the quality of credit consumer credit is extremely good. 
And so the market is on hair triggers for any evidence that credit quality is about to deteriorate. Now, what I like about this is that relative to other banks and financials, the return at Synchrony and at companies like Capital One uh, is twice what you're getting out of a traditional bank. It's not sensitive to the rate of interest. So as interest rates come down, their spreads don't contract, right? Um, and, uh, and you don't pay any premium. You actually get them for a discount compared to regional banks, all because of this concern around the normalization of credit quality. But the most recent data we had is that employment in the U.S. is growing really robustly. And we've never had a credit cycle, a consumer credit cycle, that didn't have rising joblessness uh, behind it. And so while... It's a tough row to hoe. I think you just have a really attractively priced asset here in a very good business. And then my last question, which is a little bit more on a, a personal level, you've been at Bernstein for a really long time. You've been an investor for a really long time. What gets you excited about being an investor and being one here? Well, what's exciting about being an investor is there's always something new to figure out. Okay, awesome. I mean, that's also what's hard about it is that it's humbling every day, but at the same time, there are new challenges. And what's good about doing that here is this is a place that's quite intellectually curious and open and supportive of trying to figure that out. Great. Jerry, thank you for your time today. Um, any questions, feel free to follow up directly with me. Uh, if you don't have my email address, it's mark.pensinerbernstein.com and via phone, it's 212-969-6655. Thank you to Jerry and thank you for your time. Thank you, Mark.